0: Hello and welcome to the Hearn Hymn Podcast. I'm Dale. And I'm Tamra. And when two theologians get married, what, what you, you get...
1: get is a podcast.
0: Well, this is episode 53, fifty-three of the podcast. We are here in the sweltering heat of the podcast room of the world headquarters of the Hearn Hymn Podcast. There are fireworks all around us because Fourth of July is fast approaching, and we live in a neighborhood where the clientele likes to test out the fireworks. All Both- year
1: round. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so if you hear some booms, it's not, well, we we assume it's not gunshots. They're we not- are choosing to believe it's not gunshots. They are fireworks in the neighborhood. But the people on the Next Door app, I was just gonna they say. <laughs> assume that they are gunshots. They say, what was that? Is that a gunshot? It's like, it was someone's muffler, fool. Come on, yeah. like, calm down.
1: I love the Next Door app because it's always a certain group of people who are like, oh my gosh, there's gunshots. And then... Another group of people was like, oh, it was fireworks. <laughs> Clearly, you have no idea what a good was. It was those little poppers
0: like. that you get from the yeah. ice cream man. Yeah. You remember those? You would stomp on them?
1: I was never allowed to get those. They were dangerous.
0: Oh, uh, really? I would, I would uh, you... do them between my fingers? And then they spark? Yeah.
1: Nope. I wasn't allowed to do that. Oh, they weren't
0: dangerous. They.
1: Mm, according to my mother, they were.
0: Okay. Well, here we are. Shows you how much she knows. <laughs> Well, anyway,
1: I, <laughs> <laughs> I still have my fingers. You, unlike too. you, I
0: mean, I don't feel anything in the tips of my fingers, but they're still there. It's fine. Anyways, That's disturbing. So,
1: back to the podcast. That's what we're here for. Come on.
0: We have a lot of episodes on this podcast now,
1: fifty-three to be exact.
0: Well, this is the, we have fifty-two, and then this one. So, yes, this is the fifty-third. We will have fifty-three once this one is over. For some people, it might already be over. They might have already clicked away.
1: Yeah, because you're talking too much. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but, you know, we talk a lot about the blow ups of Christian leaders and Christian organizations and really the dangers of their power and the damage that they've caused, you know, whether it's Mark Driscoll or Bill Hybels or Robbie Zacharias. We've really spent a lot of time deconstructing what happened in their lives and in their ministries that led them to such a place of being, you know, abusers and such. But one thing that we haven't spent a lot of time talking about that I think we should talk about today is kind of like, where do we go from here? And so I thought we would spend this podcast kind of talking about what it looks like to pick up the pieces a little bit. And so kind of the question is what happens to a church or a Christian organization or a leader when, when the leadership morally fails in such an epically egregious way? Like how can an organization come back from that? How can a church come back for that? Should they come back from it? What does redemption actually look like? And from recent cases, it seems like it could go one way or the other um, just based on what we've seen.
1: Yeah. A few weeks back, we talked about Mark Driscoll and the original church that he came from um, Mars Hill, which was in Seattle. And after his firing, that church ended up dissolving. And unfortunately they no longer exist. So in this specific case, it seems like that one um, didn't come back. Yeah. It didn't come back. And, because of the corruption was just so deep within the church that it was never able to reach a place of health and of life. And because of that, it it shouldn't have come back. And so we see it didn't come back because it was just uh, too toxic to continue to exist. Um, and then there's a, another case, uh, Willow Creek, which Gosh, there's been so many studies in school, like case studies based on Willow Creek and its growth and the way that it became.
0: Oh yeah, they were like the archetype of mega here's, church. Here's how you grow your church to a massive size. Yeah,
1: right. I've been in so many courses where Willow Creek was brought up time and time again on like best practices and and ways to grow your church. Um, but their the lead pastor of Willow Creek, uh, Pastor Bill Hybels. Uh, was a sexual abuser. And that church obviously took a serious hit because of his shortcomings and his egregious acts that were happening within the church. So it kind of seems like they're coming back. They have an entirely new leadership board, a new lead pastor, and it seems like they're on the road of redemption and trying to find health and dismantling the leadership that was, that might have caused the kind of abuse that was happening because it was being allowed within even the leadership structures. So I think... Yeah, there's they, signs of
0: life, it seems like, for them.
1: Yeah. So they're not being dismantled in terms of their entire church, just dismantling the toxic ways that were within. And hopefully we can see some real health and life come out of this church again.
0: Yeah, exactly. And then there's the current one that's kind of the big one right now, which is Ravi Zacharias' organization, RZIM. And they have kind of finally come out and kind of broken the silence since the reports were released about Ravi Zacharias and everything that he did and all the, the egregious um, abuses that he perpetrated against you know any number of women. And their CEO, Sarah Davis, who also happens to be Robbie Zacharias's daughter, recently released an apology on behalf of RZIM, and you can find that on their website, and we'll link to it in the show notes. And also their North American director, Abdu Murray, uh, also gave an apology in a recent interview, and so we'll link to that video as well. And just hearing their apologies, like they were good ones. like They are probably some of the best apologies I've ever heard or seen from a leader. Who's publicly taking responsibility uh, in a scandal, and so we want to dive into that a little bit and see the inner workings of that and kind of process through what that looks like what What do you do when your namesake, the mm. namesake of your organization, turns out to be the horrible sexual abuser right and you didn't know it, but I also want to take some time today to dive into the latest Southern Baptist Convention drama. Uh, At the time of this episode, or the time that it'll be released, it's been a couple of weeks since the SBC uh, annual meeting. So it's like the annual meeting of the largest denomination in America. And there's some pretty consequential stuff that happened that really shows divergent visions for the denomination and a growing fracture in the SBC, which also is indicative of a growing fracture in American evangelicalism. And so there's a lot of questions swirling about who the SBC is going to be and what American evangelicalism really is going to be uh, in light of kind of the current things that are happening and the the crisis of identity that happens uh, along these fissures in the movement itself. But first, let's talk about RZIM, uh, Sarah Davis, Abdi Murray, and kind of like what's coming next for them and kind of deconstruct that and kind of – talk through the particulars of that. So it appears that RZIM, as an organization, at least from everything that I've seen, it seems like they're trying to do what they can to make amends, not only for what Ravi Zacharias did, but also the ways in which their leadership was complicit in not putting an end to it and actually inadvertently covering up Mm -hmm. and covering for him. I think their initial um, statement in response to outside reports were denial. And then they did their own internal investigation. Well, it wasn't their own internal investigation. They had an independent investigation that they invited. And that's when they really changed their tone and their, their tack. Uh, But there are a few different ways that they're kind of trying to come back from that and make amends for that. Uh, And the first is that they're changing the name of the organization. They're going to take Robbie Zacharias's name off of the organization uh, for obvious reasons and they're gonna take down or they have taken down all of his content from all of their channels from the website uh, their website right now is actually just a simple landing page with just things talking about uh, the report the you know the apologies and those kinds of things it's off of YouTube it's off of Instagram it's off of Facebook they pulled all of his content down it's no longer on the internet
1: well anything that they can control
0: right anything yeah, yeah from any any of their channels hmm and they're gonna, they They haven't changed the name yet. They're probably still deciding what the name will be. Um, but they're going to remove his name from that. And the other thing they're doing is that they've actually stopped receiving donations. Like they're a nonprofit that is donation-based. They've stopped accepting donations for the time being. And they're actually going to transition the organization away from what it's been. And it's a bit unclear. Maybe it's unclear on their end. Um, But all I could find was that they are, quote, transitioning away from having a global team of evangelists and apologists to becoming a grant-making organization, which will support both evangelism and the prevention of and caring for victims of sexual abuse. And so that's fairly vague. (laughs) Right. But they're changing as an organization. And unfortunately, because of the lack of funding, uh, because of the scandal and because of their changing emphasis, they're actually laying off 60% of the people that work for them. So that's unfortunate collateral damage as a part of this whole scandal. Mm. Uh, and of course, opinions are divided on this, right? Like some people are like, yes, we're for redemption, reconciliation, um, you know, genuine effort to make things right. And then there are others who are understandably skeptical just because of the fact that the people who are running the organization – were all there while Ravi was abusing people. And so it's difficult when they were slow to question him. They're slow to respond. Their initial responses to this weren't fantastic. And so some people are cynical. Uh, But as you watched um, Sarah Davis's uh, apology video, she's the CEO of RZAM again, and uh, Ravi Zacharias's daughter. uh, What were your thoughts on that?
1: I went into the video thinking I would be disappointed. (laughs) Thinking there would be a, we're sorry, but... And then a long list of reasons why she wasn't at fault. Or a long list of reasons why the ministry at large wasn't at fault. And her explaining how she was just blinded by everything. And obviously it being her father. But I was pleasantly surprised and i can't even imagine how it it must have felt for the victims to watch her apology hmm. because obviously i have no idea what conversations have been happening between the ministry and the victims but for her to publicly apologize to them and not even just on behalf of her father because that's really easy to point the spotlight back on Ravi. right
0: <laughs> right it wasn't My apologies us. on behalf of the dead guy yeah. yeah.
1: And that doesn't, I mean, that's great. Obviously he's the one who did it, but in the same, at the same time, she admits that she believed him and she didn't question him. And she, in many ways, continued to allow it to be hidden because she never called his story into account. Like she never questioned what he had said to her. And I think that's, probably twofold difficult to her. One, she was running the ministry. And two, she's his daughter. I mean, if this is a man that you have respected, and she even goes into saying all of that, you know, like this was her dad. She respected him and she loved him. And the idea of being part of this organization was something that she really felt God was calling her to. And then come to find out he had lied to her, and abused people. And she didn't even give them the time of day when the accusations came out. So she not only took responsibility as the one who oversees the organization, but she personally took responsibility and apologized. And there was never a line of excuse. And I think that is what made me think she actually means what she's saying? There's no piece of this where she's trying to make sure she looks good on the way out of this. And it seems like she's wanting true restoration. And I think there was a line somewhere in there that went along uh, the thought of I understand how messy and distorted this is. And we don't know if we can come out of this as an organization but we're going to try. And she didn't mean like come out of it as an organization um, just functionally. She meant it as will people continue to accept them? Will they continue to be able to minister with the deep, deep hurt and pain that this ministry has caused? And I think that goes back to the original question is when such egregious sin has taken place by leadership within organizations, should they even continue to exist? And I imagine this is a question she's been grappling with. And to see a complete pivot, not only a removal of the name, that's massive. I'm sure there's a lot of people upset about that.
0: Oh, yeah. When they announced that, there are a bunch of people online who were like, oh, cancel culture this, witness right. that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but there's just something about like you just can't have the name of an abuser as the name of your organization. Like the he – you can't give him that honor.
1: Right. And going as far as taking all the content down and stopping donations, there is no line they're not willing to cross to bring restoration and redemption. I can't think in my mind and maybe – Maybe if I sit and ponder it for another week or two, I could come up with something. But I can't think of something that would tell me this isn't real because they're not willing to cross this line. It seems like they're truly thinking through what does restoration and redemption look like because of how deep and hideous the sin that has come out of this organization has been.
0: Yeah, I mean, I felt the same way when I was listening to that apology. And I only listened to it because you're like, hey, I think you should see this. I'm like, mm, I don't think so. I'm not interested. I, I was like, yeah, I I'll get, you... send it to me. I'll get to it when I get to it because I honestly like, meh, yeah. don't care.
1: I told you like three times. And I think you just didn't you didn't believe me that it was a good apology. And the tone, I think her tone um, also... I don't want to say her tone was right because like how do you how do you say oh yeah that was that was a good apology your tone was right your words were right but you could <laughs> see she thought through this and felt it and was genuinely apologizing and yeah. it wasn't for the sake of PR.
0: Well and you yeah and there's the, definitely a difference. So like I w- recently watched a, an interview with the lead pastor of Hillsong Brian Houston And the interviewer was at – it was like a news station. I can't remember which one. But the interviewer, she was asking him about Carl Lentz and the leadership issue that happened there, Mm -hmm. mirroring another one that happened in Texas. Just a lot of things and a lot of people hurt by a lot of different leadership failures. And um, he had an apology. And I was like, oh, that that apology is so wimpy. Hmm. Because it was just just so like – um, I'm sorry that people got hurt and that mistakes were made. And so it was just like very disconnected from mm, him. What well, was actually, yeah. Yeah. yeah, And so that's honestly what I've come to expect from leaders in general who make apologies. Um, but unfortunately also Christian leaders,
1: because they want to apologize for the sake of knowing everyone wants them to apologize. But they do not really ever, sorry. They're yeah. not really sorry. And they don't want their apology to show that they were wrong. Yeah. Where she had no issues saying, I was wrong. I didn't listen to the victims. I silenced them because I believed my father. And I didn't follow up. Like, that was all her. She took responsibility.
0: Yeah, and so um, that to me was a – I was like, wow, this is a rarity that this kind of apology is given uh, on behalf of, our, of an organization. And then the other video was Abdul Murray, who is the North American director of RZIM, and he also served as general counsel for the ministry, and uh, he was a close friend of Robbie Zacharias's. I think they they co-authored a book together, which I, I think got pulled from production, and he was also, he was kind of implicated in some of the cover-up for Robbie's abuses. And he did this interview with uh, Sean and Josh McDowell on YouTube, and we'll link to that in the show notes, kind of just explaining everything and talking through. And so I, even after watching the one by Sarah Davis, I was like, all right, well, let me see this other fool, because surely he's probably going to have some kind of he's BS gonna excuses. He's going to dance around it. Yeah. He's going to dance around It's going to be no good. And it was like this hour long interview and I watched it and I was like, dang, like my, like I came into it so jaded. Um, but it's really worth the watch. Like both of these videos are really worth the Mm -hmm. watch. Um, because he was like so humble and so apologetic. And he was like, now when, when this situation happened, here's what I said. What I said was wrong. He said, also, the tone in which I said it was also offensive and it was harmful and it was discouraging to other victims who may have wanted to come forward at that time. I made it harder for them in doing that by this, this, and that specific action. And for that reason, I'm absolutely sorry and I want to learn to do better in in new situations. And he just was like so clear and so – like you could tell – he has spent like a lot of time thinking about just going back to the backlog of the whole saga and all the things and i thought it was it was so important that he was like here's exactly what i said and did that was wrong that was hurtful and he said also the spirit i had and the tone that i had while I, while i was doing that was also wrong mm-hmm. and he talked about um when the reports first started coming out there were like this weird email exchange between Robbie Zacharias and, and I think it was a female uh, colleague within the organization and don't quote me on that I can't remember who exactly the email was from uh, but Ravi had some kind of weird explanation for those emails and Abdu talked about how he's like yeah I, I backed him up on that and I repeated those explanations he's like when Robbie told it to me it sounded flimsy but I went with it because I trusted him and he said, and that, that absolutely caused a lot of damage. Mm-hmm. And so I think in both of these cases, both with Sarah Davis and Abdi Murray, you, uh, you really got the sense of how they had been taken for a ride, you know, just as much as everybody else. And so you had empathy for them on, in that regard, but even though they were victims, they were also perpetrators and they, they just wore that gloriously.
1: And I think the key thing about both of these apologies is they never asked for empathy. They weren't framing it in a way that they asked you to understand where they were coming from. They owned their wrong blatantly. They didn't dance around any of it they didn't try and even say well it was all him it was all him he was lying to us they took ownership of how they were part of what happened and yeah i i was just so blown away about the fact that they never asked for empathy in exchange they never wanted you to feel bad for them they never wanted you to be like oh well i understand they, they sat there, I was gonna say they stood there, but they didn't, they sat there and made you feel and hear them that they were genuinely sorry and it weighed on their souls and you, like, you can't, you can't fake that.
0: I mean, if you can, like, you're a sociopath and like, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not even going to try and figure that one out. Yeah. And there is something about because you mentioned like they're not asking for empathy or anything like that. But it is amazing the amount of grace it elicits in the people listening to you when you're humble, honest and vulnerable and you take responsibility for your shortcomings as your shortcomings, not as things that had happened to you, but things Mm -hmm. that originated Mm -hmm. within you that caused harm to others. Like when you are willing to like truly confess,
1: yeah, yeah,
0: that there's so much grace for that, and there's there's something theological happening there, you know mm-hmm. like if we're mm-hmm. if we are willing to confess our sins, that Jesus is gracious and just, that he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness, and I think insofar as we have the Holy Spirit, like that hmm. it elicits that from us when someone yeah. else. Does that. Is Mm -hmm. in that that same posture. Like you can't help but like be empathetic for for the people who are apologizing to you when they're coming from a place of such humility.
1: So how do you think things would have played out had Ravi not passed away when he did? Like if all of this was coming out and Ravi were still alive, do you think things would be playing out differently.
0: I think they definitely would. And I was like doing the dishes earlier. Like this was just rolling around in my head of like, man, it was probably like a grace that Robbie Zacharias died before all this came out. And maybe that's a good thing to say. Maybe it's not because I mean, it's certainly a grace to him.
1: Well, that was my thought when you said it. What about his victims? Like, how do they feel now that it's all come out and the person who did this to them is dead?
0: Hmm. Is right.
1: there is there justification for them? Because yeah. all of the apologies are coming from people who were part of it, but they weren't the people who, like, abused them firsthand. Yeah. I I just think of the victim specifically, Mm. how hard that is for them.
0: Yeah. I guess what just when I was thinking about it, I was thinking about, and at that moment, the empathy I was feeling for the people who had been doing the apologizing, whether it was Abdu, who was a friend and who worked closely with him, or it was Sarah Davis's daughter, and just waiting through having to face her dad with this knowledge, having to remove him from the organization, having to restructure all of these things like what do i do with this with this organization? what do i do in my family? just all of those messy entangled things where i guess for them it's a lot easier to find out the fullness of these things. After he's gone, than to have to grapple with their implications in real time while also looking him in the face, like it's just like that's what was running through my mind, of like what if someone close to me was leading a double life and then I had to face them and deal with all this stuff in that regard It's a grace that to them that he's he's not here anymore,
1: yeah, for them, I agree it's probably um i mean not easier for them that he's not here to deal with all this, but there is that piece of all of the drama that's removed for them as they're already making hard decisions.
0: Yeah, and as I think about the victims, it is true that they will never get to face him or uh, he will never be forced to face them, rather.
1: Yeah, yeah. And for that moment to come where it became apparent to everyone that they weren't lying, that it was
0: true. Mm.
1: What they were saying was true. And that
0: he had to admit it.
1: He had to admit it. He could no longer continue to cover it up. Because that that causes like this loss of dignity in someone. When Hmm. something happens to you and the person in power can continue to hide it, continue to cover it, and everyone is still cheering that person's name, and now you're being called the liar. Like, I imagine they would have want that scenario to be different.
0: Yeah. I wonder, though, if he had remained alive for longer, if the truth would have been deferred for longer, hmm. if he would have been able to keep it under have wraps to for longer and he somehow. could have yeah. manipulated more people, even his own family and his own friends to, you know, keep things under wraps for longer and keep hold the ship together. Hmm. Uh, I mean, eventually the truth is going to come out and... I think he was going to come out whether he was alive or not. Um, but I wonder yeah. if justice would have been prolonged even longer if he were around to try and preserve himself for as as much as he could. Uh, but I guess we'll never know because events have unfolded the way they've unfolded. And we're kind of left in the aftermath of it, you know, as it stands.
1: Yeah. And so as far as I think seeing just these egregious acts from organizations and people that are trusted and that have a voice of influence in the lives of not only Christians, but of others. I would say the approach that is being taken now at this point by the leaders of this ministry, I think they're moving in the right direction of restoration and redemption And it's still a long journey to see recovery and to see what's going to come of this ministry and even its complete restructuring. But I do think they are all adamant about redemption happening.
0: Yeah, and I don't think any of that is to negate the um, missteps they took, especially in the the early going, which is why apologies have been necessary. Um, but I think it can also be true that, that there were serious mistakes that they made, but also now they are walking in in, in a path of redemption that hopefully will lead to um, the organization in its new 2.0 version, mm-hmm. being able to make some kind of impact for good, you know, beyond the carnage that has resulted from, you know, this whole scandal.
1: And even the idea of changing the mission of this organization to redeem this sin of sexual abuse, there's something about that that seems like it could only happen through the work of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. This isn't someone who's just trying to strategize keeping a ministry alive. This is truly the work of the Holy Spirit of turning this ministry for what it could have fallen for, right? So its demise was because of this deeply rooted sexual abuse that was happening from the leader. And now the kind of ministry it's going to be moving forward in is to redeem where it would have fallen from.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there's something very symbolic about that choice Yeah, that is very redemptive. Well, I'd like to pivot from here a little bit. It's hard to beat the level of identity crisis that the organization, RZIM, is currently facing um, when literally the namesake of your organization turns out not to be the person that you thought he was and you have to, to change that. But the SBC is... Likewise, currently feeling some kind of way about what it means to be the SBC and really embattled over that. And so I thought we would talk about that because I think it, it relates to this same conversation about RZIM and pivoting and what is who, identity crisis of an organization and a, and like what is the mission and where are we going with this thing. Uh, the Southern Baptist Convention, they recently had their annual meeting and they had to skip last year's because of COVID-19. And so there was a lot of pent-up energy for sure that came in hot this week in Nashville. <laughs> and it was like putting a bunch of mentos in a diet coke bottle and it was just an absolute circus. It was it was wild. I was following it on Twitter. I was like reading the articles and uh, kind of getting live updates of what was happening. It was just an absolute circus. And there were really some key issues at play, but it all really revolved around the idea of whether the SBC was going to drift more right-wing or not. And from the right-wingers' perspective, it was about whether or not the SBC was going to go woke liberal or whether they're going to remain faithful to the Bible. And then from the non-right-wingers, it was about whether the SBC was going to go white fundamentalist or remain faithful to the Bible. So differing perspectives there. And so the right wing side was really gearing up for what they saw as kind of like the new conservative resurgence. There was this historical conservative resurgence in the SBC in the 1970s and eighties led in part by like Albert Mueller and many others of his ilk. But this year there's this sense among these kind of right wingers that this is the new conservative resurgence. But the phrase they used was that we're going to take the ship and so that they aggressive pirate flags, and they put pirate flag emojis next to their names on Twitter, and they came in hot to Nashville, and they were ready for a fight. And there were really three major battlegrounds, and thankfully, uh, they went the way of the non-crazy this year. <laughs> it was it was closer than I thought it was going to be. Mm. Yeah. And things things got crazy. I actually got into a Twitter fight with somebody accidentally. leave it to you and the conversation ended with him saying like okay Mr. Super Smart Smug Guy I was like I feel like I won this exchange (laughs) (laughs) but there are really three battlegrounds and the first one was for the SBC presidency now the outgoing president J.D. Greer uh, he's been criticized by kind of the the more conservative wing of the SPC because he had criticized Trump a couple of times and because he had advocated for racial reconciliation so he's been accused of being a CRT woke liberal even though he's very conservative like he's deep like all these people are conservative it's, they're it's Baptists. Southern Baptist yeah yeah you can't be you can't be a Baptist and not be conservative uh, but so now there's a new a new president and for the right wingers they wanted Mike Stone and he would certainly come out hard against critical race theory CRT and intersectionality and he also would have shut down investigations into how the SBC has handled uh, sexual abuse allegations and then the quote-unquote moderate was egg-litten I say quote-unquote because he's Baptist and so he's very conservative but those who were advocating for him they like him because he advocates for racial reconciliation he is also very much uh, for the sexual abuse investigations. Uh, he's also a bit of a softer complementarian, and so he's a little bit more sensitive to how we can empower women, and so he's he's thinking through those things. He's a lot softer on the whole CRT conversation. And then if you're somewhere in the middle, there was Albert Mueller, which really gives you a sense of how right-wing Mike Stone is.
1: Right, if Albert Moeller is in the
0: middle. Yeah, because if Albert Moeller looks to his right and there's anybody there, that person is like right-wing. Because it doesn't get much more conservative than Albert Moeller. And in the end, Ed Litton won, which was a a good thing. Then the second issue was over uh, CRT, critical race theory. Now, there was a resolution that was brought forth to outright condemn CRT, Uh, and intersectionality basically as sinful and completely to use them is completely incompatible with any kind of biblical worldview. And so this, this statement was just very strong and had it passed, it probably would have accelerated the mass exodus of uh, pastors and churches of colors that have been leaving the SBC as this debate has been swirling. Yeah. And it also would have, I think further drove a wedge of anti-intellectualism into Hmm. the SBC, which has it's more of a populist kind of group as it is. And so the, it, there's just kind of this anti-intellectual thread that I think was part of this. But thankfully, that resolution didn't pass. So that was another good one. And then the third uh, battleground was a resolution to have an independent investigation uh, into how the SBC has handled sexual abuse cases and investigations. And the general feeling is that you know the SBC has failed to protect victims and respond in these cases well, even to like the highest levels of the denomination. So the executive uh, committee. And so thankfully this resolution did pass and that investigation will hopefully be forthcoming. But even as I say that, it's a little bit difficult because the people who are supposed to commission the investigation are the ones who themselves are meant to be investigated for wrongdoing. So
1: that doesn't sound like it's going to end well.
0: Yeah. It stands the reason that they're going to drag their feet on that one. So it'd be an independent investigation. But the ones who are in charge of making sure the independent investigation happens are the ones who are being investigated for how they handled sexual abuse allegations.
1: Yeah. So to get that ball rolling, they need to make this decision. And they're probably not going to.
0: Right. But from an official like the gavel hit the table, the resolution passed.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Let's see what happens. <laughs> yeah.
0: So it would seem, you know, victories across the board on this one. Mm. The reasonable side passed, at least from my perspective.
1: As I was say, from your perspective, the right? The
0: liberal drift that I've been yeah. hoping for passed. <laughs> and uh, genuinely, I think that's encouraging because this is the largest denomination in the country. And they are influential to hundreds upon hundreds of churches, both within the denomination and without the denomination. Because right, a non denominational church is just a Baptist church with a cool website,, hmm. but all the stuff they're using is lifeway, which is s b c which is
1: s b c yeah,
0: and so it's like hugely important, like how this organization it interacts on on issues of sexual abuse and racial reconciliation,
1: well, and I think for christians and non Christians, so as you have the non Christians on the outside looking in they're probably largely seeing SBC because the denomination is so large that someone who's a non-Christian is going to see the acts of SBC and just associate that with all Christians because everywhere they turn, it's an SBC church. And so if SBC is not caring about sexual abuse and not even investigating it when allegations happen within within their churches within their leaders, then non Christians are going to look at the church in America and think Christians don't actually care about victims of sexual abuse, or when it comes to CRT as well.
0: Yeah, and a lot of people who are in different denominations are like, "Hey, hey, like this the SBC isn't the whole of American evangelicalism; they don't speak for us." It's like, well, and kind of in, in some ways, you're right, but also. From, like, the world's perspective, they do. They so do. that's the way the cookie crumbles, They do, because they're
1: going to have the loudest voice, they're going to have the largest amount of resources, and they're going to be the churches that are heard, because there's so many of them. So, certainly, as a non-Christian, they're not going to understand, oh, well, technically that's not right, because there's a ton of, ton of denominations that no one even understands anyways.
0: Well, you see. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's my non-Christian, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) They're very smart.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Uh, yeah. so I'd say that this was a good thing, but I will also say that there's an annual meeting that happens every year. And so a new SBC president will be elected every single year. Resolutions will be brought forth every single year. So it's possible that things could go a different way. If not next year, it could be a threat in the years to come. Because these more right-wing people in the SBC, they aren't going anywhere. And they're actually scaring other people off from the SBC who are kind of peeling away into different denominations or networks of churches. And so it's entirely possible that their influence will continue to grow. I hope not, but it's possible. And so a victory for today, um, but still some concerns for what might lie ahead. And so that all of this drama is leading me to a question that I'd like to discuss. And that question is this. At what point can an organization, a church, a denomination, a Christian organization, no longer be reformed and you just got to abandon it for something new?
1: So your question is not in regards to the SBC specifically. It's in regards to any organization or church um, that we're continuing to see these... And they're not even just weaknesses; they're like egregious acts that are unbiblical.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm talking about SBC. At what point, right. like, you just got to walk away from the ship? At RZIM, uh, a, a local church that has just completely lost its way and become entirely toxic. Like, at what point is it not worth reforming that thing? And you just got to walk away for something new.
1: I think it's probably when your patch jobs become so weak that it continues to still fall apart. Like, the more you're trying to just patch things and you still see the ship sinking, it's probably a sign that its bones are rotting. And it's not just an issue of, let's knock down this wall here, let's slap some paint on this over here. Like, it's the actual bones of the structure are sick. And it's time we need to let them go. And the hard part is, so for example, SBC, I'm not saying that's where we are with them, but they've been around since 1845. It's like almost 200 years that they've been around. And with any type of organization, with any type of system, you continue to see the people in power live by the same way of thinking over and over and over And there's subtle shifts and subtle changes, but at some point we need to realize this is a man-made structure. These are man-made institutions, not the church itself, but the organization of SBC. And when they're man-made, there's guaranteed to have flaws. And when you put people in power and allow them to continue to grow in power— Those things need to be checked, and if they're not checked, and they just begin to be power-hungry clubs, which is really where a lot of places are turning, then it might be time to just let the bones rot and die, and let's stop reviving them.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that you said that the next generation of leaders just has an adjusted version of the same thought process as the previous generation of leaders. And that's just kind of the way it goes. And I think back to, as we're talking about the SBC, I think about the origins of the SBC where the founding of the SBC was that they were organized around the idea of slavery. Actually, that was like one of the founding ideas that, that Christians Needed their, you know, their own, their own denomination of those who were pro-slavery and slave owners, and so um, I guess when you said that, the more cynical side of me just came out.
1: <laughs> well, and as we compare the previous um, example we had of RZIM, the interesting thing of what they're doing—they're removing their name, they're removing, you know, all in in essence, they're removing its history because they're taking down all of Ravi's content.
0: And that's like a real hot button thing to do.
1: That's massive. And so it's not just a pivot. They're completely restructuring, which again is more than just slapping some new paint on it because they could change its name, but everything else about it still looks and feels the same. That's not what they're doing. They're completely dismantling what was and the sin that was birthed within this ministry. And they're even changing their mission like their focus is no longer um, apologetics, which that was the whole ministry. So it it's just an interesting way to see how do we continue to bring life and hope and shine the spotlight of Jesus when something has become so distorted to where it no longer resembles Jesus? Do we need to just start over? And it feels like that's what RZIM is doing. I think it's too soon to call it. It's too soon to really see what's happening with them. But right now, it seems like that's the direction they're going. They're they're starting over. At least they're trying. Did that answer your question?
0: <laughs> it did, but it gave me like, of, more questions about like the SBC. I mean, obviously, the SBC can't change their mission. Their mission is to make churches that multiply other churches, and that's... That's the mission of the church, you know?
1: I know, but there might be a way to completely restructure.
0: That is true. I was even reading this article about the gavel that's used at the annual meeting, and there's this debate over whether they should use it or not because it's one of, like, the original gavels from, like, the beginning, like when they, you know, Mm -hmm. call the order or Mm -hmm. close something out. But the name of the gavel is named after one of the original SBC leaders who was a slave owner. Mm, And so the question is, do we get rid of something that has like 200 years of history? Right. Or do we keep the thing that was this honoring a slave owner?
1: Yeah. Well, it's hard. Change is hard. And we like tradition and we like history. There's something about carrying on traditions that we really, really like. And we don't want to let go of those things. And It's hard for me to understand that because the entire Reformation movement with Martin Luther was this idea that Scripture is above all other things. It's above tradition. But we still hold to tradition just as heavily. We just do it differently.
0: Right. Yeah, and even just specifically with regard to that gavel, I think about the story of Hezekiah. Yeah. When he yep. smashed the uh, golden serpent, the serpents that were um, held up in the desert during the time of Moses, and when the people would look on the serpent, they they were healed from the the snake bites they that they had gotten, and these golden serpents had been preserved for literally hundreds of years. I can't, off the top of my head, remember exactly how many. Like I think like seven hundred years or something like that and but people were using them to uh, offer sacrifices to them and they were um on the high places and they were worshiping them as as gods basically and so Hezekiah took them and he destroyed them. And the first time I read this story, I'm like, dude, those things were like I felt like Indiana Jones, like it belongs in a museum, you know? <laughs> but like, <laughs> you know, like that's mm. like a serious piece of history. But he said, it's not worth it to keep this piece of history if it's going to lead us to a place of idolatry.
1: Yeah, because tradition is so powerful. We hold on to tradition and we idolize it in a way that we were never meant to. And if our traditions are pulling us away from what's truly biblical, from what it truly means to be a follower of Christ and to show Christ to the world, then we, we have to hold those things loosely. And instead we're death gripping them and we're saying, no, but tradition, tradition, we have this legacy that went before us. Like We have to honor that. The legacy of fallen, broken people should never be more important to us than sharing the legacy of
0: Jesus. Right. And that isn't to say they were ahistorical. Because right. if you forget your no, history, true. then Absolutely. you're going to fall into all, all the same traps.
1: Right. But you can't hold on to history like it's the only way to go. You have to be able to see it for its flaws and to be able to see it for its sin. They're not just, oh, that was a mistake. Sexual abuse was happening all around. Oops. No. that Like... <laughs> Like we need a cleansing. We need to purge. Like we need to destroy things in the ways that sin is being put up on these altars. Like we need to get rid of whatever is allowing this sin to continue to live. And that doesn't matter how long that tradition went back. We just gotta get rid of it. And in relation to SBC, I think the Number of cases related to sexual abuse are very concerning. And to push that under the rug and say, Oop, oopsie daisies, like, no, it needs to be dismantled in that regard. And to actually see it for what it is, there is a major problem happening here and we need to deal with it. And if somebody doesn't want to deal with it, then maybe they shouldn't be in leadership.
0: I agree with that. Yeah. And so we'll be watching that closely to see what comes of that. Um, if the promises that have been made are actually followed through and on and we can actually see truth come to light and for the victims to be heard the same way that um, Ravi Zacharias's victims have finally been heard. We want the victims from within the SBC to finally be heard as well. Yeah. Well, as we wrap up, I think it's important to point out that even the largest denomination in the nation doesn't constitute the whole of Christianity. Like the fate of Christianity isn't tied to the SBC. The fate of Christianity isn't tied to organizations like RCIM. The church of Jesus Christ isn't confined to any particular denomination or theological tradition his church is wherever his spirit is and wherever his spirit is there's hope of transformation and redemption and so there's hope for new life and so it can be difficult to look at the structures that we've built that we built ourselves and see just the way that they're failing us and we've been seeing a lot of that we've been seeing it feels like too much of that the last few years uh, as the american church has really you know experienced this time of reckoning um so, there's a lot of pain associated with that and a great deal of uncertainty about it. Um, and as real and as painful as these downfalls can feel, they really aren't the end of the world. They're awful, but they aren't the end of the world. They aren't the end of the church. It's just maybe the end of the current version of it. Hmm. Like, maybe this is now going to be the legacy version and we need the new, you know, 0.0 version. And we get to be a part of what that new version looks like. And so hopefully we can make that, that new version look something a little bit more like Jesus.
1: Thanks for listening to the Hearn and Him podcast.
0: If you enjoyed hanging out with us, consider subscribing to the podcast to receive it automatically each week.
1: Also be sure to head over to our website, hernhim.com, and you can get show notes for this episode, read our blogs, and other helpful resources.
0: We'd also love to hear from you. So you can email us at herandhimblog at gmail.com.
1: Thanks again, and we will see you next time.
0: Finding uplifting news in today's headlines
1: is often like searching for a needle in a haystack.